What I want to do right now is um, we're going to show you guys a video in just a second, just a second. Um, I want to read the passage that we're going to be reading. So we have been going through a series now through what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. If you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. So we've been in the series called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' famous teaching that basically lays out what it means to live in alignment or in agreement with God's ideals, what it looks like to really live in agreement with who God is. God is king, in other words. So in other, if you were to say, Jesus is my Lord or God is my king, what does that mean? It should mean, technically, that our lives align to some degree with what the Sermon on the Mount lays out or projects. That being said, we've been looking at this kind of verse by verse, going through it bit by bit. Uh, we came to this series called what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's the Our Father, if you want to think of it that way. It's uh, one of those pr- uh, prayers that we looked at even last week. We asked the question, how many of you are familiar with this prayer? The majority of you guys rose your hand. Then I asked how many of you actually would be able to recite this prayer. Again, I think probably a majority of you all would be able to just recite the prayer. And then I mentioned this puts you all in kind of a dangerous status. And the reason why is because it means it's very possible that this prayer could be overly familiar to you. Meaning that when something becomes overly familiar, it loses its punch. It loses its effectiveness. It loses its radical claim to be unique and different and cast a renewed vision for what it is. So what we've been trying to do over the past last week and then today and the next week is to sort of recast the vision for what the Lord's Prayer is all about. Uh, We've been taking it three sections at a time. Last week, we mainly looked at the first phrase, which is our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. This week, we're going to be taking a look at the second little section, or stanza of that, which obviously is the idea of his kingdom come. But what I want to do before we jump into that is I want to just kind of read the overall little section. I'll pray, and then we'll begin to, we'll watch that little video clip, and, uh, and then we'll just kind of make some final observations. And like I said, I promised you earlier, because it's a family-style service, we'll keep things a little bit short. And again, next week, I'm going to preach really long just to get back my rhythm. So anyways, let me, let's go ahead and read this little passage right here. So Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 9 through 13. I'll just read it, and then I'll pray, and we'll get to work. He says this, And when you pray... He says, but when you pray, verse 7, but when you pray, verse 9, but when you pray, pray like this. Get the idea that Jesus is not looking at prayer as something that was once done that's to be forgotten. He's assuming that if you are a follower of his, prayer will be a natural, normal part or rhythm of your life. And so again, you can feel the weight of that. Again, no guilt, no shame. The idea is to just think about that. What does it mean to really be a follower of Jesus? What does it really mean to have a rhythmic prayer life in which it's, it's part of who you are, part of what you're doing? And then he goes on to say in verse 10, uh, beginning or end of verse 9, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from every evil. God, we thank you for your word, because that's what this is. And we ask you right now that you would just reveal to us new truths, or truths that maybe are old truths, but have lost its potency. And God, we ask that you would help us to understand 
in a profound way of what it is you're inviting us to pray. So God, help our lives to be oriented toward you and around you and for you. So Jesus, we even ask in agreement right now just that you would answer this prayer. Let your kingdom come here in this building, on this plot of land, in this city, in this county, in this state, in this country, as it is in heaven. So God, we just commit this time in your hands and we pray that our hearts and our minds and our thoughts would be working and be open to hear all it is that you have to speak to us, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to have a little video clip for you guys to watch from the people from the Bible Project on heaven and earth. Let's go ahead and watch it. So in, the Bible, so in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted... God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin 
when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space To be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. We believe the best way to... It's good. It's good stuff. So I want to look at mainly just kind of four words out of this little section. So I'll show you a little slide, and we'll just kind of break it down, the little section, a little um, part that we're going to be looking at, which is three sections. Number one, where he describes your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next slide, uh, let's just kind of even break down even further. We'll take a look at just basically four words. Uh, The first word that we'll take a look at is the word kingdom. The next one is will, the next one is the word earth, and then heaven, and we'll kind of circle back and then take a look at the subject of kingdom. What does it mean when Jesus tells his followers to pray, specifically, your kingdom come, referring to God's kingdom, let your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth, this planet as it is in heaven. What, 
what's happening here in the passage and what are we being invited, more importantly, into to participate, to be a part of with what God is up to in this world. So with that, I want to jump in. We'll take a look at each of these four words. Number one, let's look at the word kingdom. So the next slide we'll have that basically unpacks this little word kingdom. It's the word basilea. Um, it basically means royal power or kingship or domain. One of the best ways if you want to think about the word kingdom is think of the domain of a king, right? Nice and easy, the domain, dome, the domain of a king. So what does the domain of a king look like? Well, that's what a kingdom is. That's where the king reigns. That's where the kings, in the next slide, we'll take a look at the, is the word uh, will, which, again, what is the word will? He has the word that's used here in the Greek, and you read that. It's really this idea of what one wishes or has determined to be done. It's the will, choice, inclination, desire, or pleasure. That's what the will is. If you think of it this way, what is your will? We all have wills, right? To some degree, that's what makes our world such a big mess because what ends up happening is your will conflicts with my will and vice versa. And what you have then is disturbances in the force. You have problems. You have chaos. You have challenges. You have fights. You have wars. You have battles. You have conflict. Uh, conflict happens when your will is being canceled out by another person's will, and they take offense to that, and they retaliate or fight back, resist. That's our world, by the way. But what Jesus is inviting us to pray is something that has to do with God's will. God's will coming into this world, coming into my, my life, into the domain of this planet. Uh, and that's what we'll take a look at the next word, which is not only the word will, but the next one is earth. The word that's actually used here, uh, gay is the actual Greek word. It means land or ground or soil. The main land as opposed to the sea or water. Again, the opposite, obviously, of water or a body of water. Earth as a whole, so you can think of it as this blue orb we call planet Earth, um, or Earth as opposed to heavens. So this particular word is actually used in a multiple uh, settings uh, of ways to not just simply refer to just this planet. So what it does invites us to realize that the invitation for God's will, whatever that is, and God's kingdom, whatever that is, is to come not just onto this planet in a very general sense, though that is without question where God's going with all this, but it's possible to think of something so big, so vast, that we forget the reality of here and now, in this place, on this earth, in this space, in this arena. In fact, if you want to push it even further, you and I as human beings, we are made from the what? Earth. So when we pray in the most simplistic sense, God, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth. We're also involving or including the fact of these little chunks of clay called you and I as human beings. We're inviting God to come take up residency or take up ownership or exert his will, his good desires over my life, over the clay or the earth of my own substance and humanity. Um, fourthly, take a look at the last one here is the word heaven or reinos. Uh, and again, this, this has a wide variety of usages. Again, for the most part, I think in our Western culture, we typically think of the word heaven as exclusively referring to this you know, otherworldly or alternate you know, existence way out there, not intangible particular area. But the, the way the Bible actually uses this particular word is far more diverse. It refers to the sky, which is the space of the birds, right? It's where the birds fly. We call that that's their, their space or the heavens. Uh, we also think of the word heaven in the scripture to refer to the place where the stars are. 
but it's also referred to the space where God lives, the domain. So again, depending upon the context, so when you read your Bible, God bless you, when you read your Bible, you've got you to ask yourself the question, what space is being referred to in the usage of the particular word, heaven? So uh, again, elevation, sky by extension, the, the space or the abode of God. So let's circle back and finish up with some thoughts on the subject of the word kingdom, because this is what we want to really focus on, because this is what Jesus is inviting us to pray So he's inviting his followers. He says, when you pray, pray this. Pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will, whatever that is, be done on earth as it is in your space, your heaven, your domain. So with that, let's try to understand a little bit of the usage of this word kingdom and what it specifically means. So the Next slide. The very first space or the area where we, think, we see the idea of kingdom being introduced in the Bible is Genesis chapter 1. That shouldn't come as a shocker because what we see in the very beginning is God creates Adam and Eve and he creates this whole world, this whole space, universe, right? We call it physical, tangible existence uh, made out of atoms and made out of subparticles and things of reality. This is what we would describe as our space, our domain, our zone. And yet God is described as this king. He's Lord, as we would describe, over all these things. And yet, one of the most shocking things that God does in the intro passages of the Bible, Genesis 1 through chapter 3, is that we see God actually shares. God gives domain over to his subjects. Uh, humans, human beings made in his likeness and image are invited to rule and reign, just like God rules and reigns. This is one of the most phenomenal things about God is that even though God is king over all things, he's described in sovereign type language. When we say the word sovereign, we're referring to like a kingly type of a reign. What God does is he shares. Because think about this. God actually shared rulership, leadership, authority, kingly authority to human individuals. Now, in order to lead well, one of the most important things, I'll ask this as a question, uh, what's one of the most important things that you and I need in order to lead well? Let's say, for example, let's, you were just uh, hired or nominated or upgraded to becoming you know, general manager of your branch. Let's call it and say it's a paper place in a city called Scranton. Let's say, for example, you have officially become the new general manager of this particular space. What's the most important thing that you need in order to govern or rule or lead well? What do you need? Knowledge. What else? Wisdom, right, there you go, you, we, you just answered it. Authority, right? But wisdom is, I would say, the most important thing. You need wisdom. Because what happens if you don't have wisdom? You're foolish. All right, it's the opposite of wisdom, by the way. If you're like, what's the opposite of wisdom? Uh, foolishness. And so that's what happens. If you are full of foolishness and you rule or govern, what you do is you bring foolishness into the realm that you are called to steward well. Wisdom, on the other hand, if you act or live according to wisdom, you bring wise uh, stewardship of all that you have been given domain over. So what happened for Adam and Eve was it was dependent upon them to trust the wisdom of God in order to rule and reign well. But you know the story in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve listened not to the voice of God, but to the voice of the deceiver. And the voice of the deceiver, the serpent, deceived them into basically believing that they can be the center of their own source of wisdom. That's the downfall. That's the problem with humanity, by the way. Human beings think innately inside of each one of us, 
we have the key to our own progression, that we can figure out life on our own, in our own, by ourselves, independent from anybody or any other outside source of wisdom. And the fact of the matter is, the older you get, the more you begin to realize you, you, that's not true. Like that's, That is a bill of goods that we oftentimes buy into. Well, Adam and Eve bought into it, and it brought destruction onto the planet. It brought distrust between the two of them. It brought alienation from them and God. In other words, literally chaos and hell came into being. Now, that didn't mean that God was no longer king. God was still king. But now that the kingship that God intended to be part of an extension of his kingship on planet Earth was now marred. It was ruined. So rather than taking care of creation and taking care of each other and worshiping God and taking care of the animals, what ends up happening now is chaos is unleashed upon this planet. And as a result of that, you see people dominating over other people. You see empires rising up and exercising oppressive leadership and militaristic domination over other people. In other words, you see the 6 o'clock news all, right, all over the pages of the Bible. And you see humanity broken and crushed and oppressed and ruined and destroyed. And what you see the second time, the second major introduction we see in which the kingship of God is introduced is in the book of Exodus chapter 15. Uh, So fast forward several hundred years or maybe even a few thousand years, depending upon how you would see the the distinction or the differences between Genesis chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 15. What you have is this people group called the Jewish people. They are oppressed by a militaristic world superpower called Egypt. And yet, underneath their oppression, they're crying out for help. And then God hears. God delivers. God steps in, in other words. What God does is he steps into the circumstances and says, I will deliver you. I will set you free. And he uses a guy by the name of Moses. And if you're familiar with the story or the Prince of Egypt, remember that movie? Uh, This is literally the storyline of that. God steps in. But the interesting language that's actually used in Exodus chapter 15, which is a song that was written by a female in the Bible. It's an amazing song. And she writes a song about what Yahweh, God, had done. And one of the lines that she adds to this song is this, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Again, this is kingly uh, language. The language that's used here is to employ this, the imagination to cause us to begin to think and to ask the question, what does it look like for Yahweh... For God to reign. Well, it looks like evil being crushed. Amen? Isn't that good? That's what it looks like for God's kingdom to be set up or to be realized. So fast forward throughout the prophets. Again, we're just going through Old Testament history very quickly. Ezekiel envisions a time where he says that Yahweh will come to be the shepherd of Israel. Which, by the way, the word shepherd was an Old Testament um, idiom or metaphor that was also used to describe um, the actual kings of the people of Egypt. So there are occasions where God actually um, comes against the kings and the leaders of Egypt, or the, I'm sorry, of Israel, the kings of Israel, and he says, you guys are horrible shepherds. Rather than taking care of the sheep, you fleece the sheep for your own benefit and your own good. So you get this image of rather than tending the sheep, they're eating the sheep, which, by the way, is not good, apparently, in God's mind. And so what God does, he rebukes them. So Ezekiel envisions a time in which God himself will step in and become the shepherd of his people. 
Zechariah envisions a time when Yahweh will come with all of his servants with him or saints with him. And then Malachi envisions a time which the Lord will suddenly appear at the temple, this place. Remember we looked at the video, the temple, which is the, it's the space between heaven and earth where the two of these worlds come together. They overlap like a Venn diagram. Next slide. Um, this other prof- prophetic uh, statement from Isaiah. Some of you are familiar with it. Isaiah 52 he goes on and says this, how beautiful as he envisions, he imagines a time uh, when he describes God reigning. Here's what he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, which by the way is the word, we would use the word gospel. So if you're ever wondering, like, where does the gospel arise in the Old Testament? This is it. This is literally the passage. The good news, the good news as he envisions that Yahweh, God will come and he will bring good news and happiness who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, here's our phrase, your God reigns. So the question is, what does it look like for God to reign? I'll summarize it like this. There's basically three things, I think, that Jesus' audience would have considered or thought about based upon the summary of passages that the Old Testament prophets, in particular Isaiah, would have talked about. Like the question, what does it look like? For God to truly step in and become king and reign in our midst. I think for them, it involved these three things. Number one, release. Release of captive Israel. Because Jews in Jesus' day, they saw themselves sitting underneath an oppressive world superpower. Anybody know the name of that world superpower? Rome. They were sitting under the boot of Rome. They were oppressed They were not free. They envisioned a time in which maybe one day God would break the chain or the yoke of Rome, Roman occupation over their land, and that they would be set free. They would be released. Secondly, I think what it meant to them would be the defeat of evil. Now, in first century Jews, how would they, for the most part, define evil? What would they have defined as evil in their culture? Probably Rome. So again, their idea of Rome was, to some degree, superficial. It didn't go deep enough. God had another evil beneath the evil which they envisioned. Uh, it's oftentimes the way humanity works is that we typically don't go deep enough. God wants to go even deeper. So some of the problems that you might look at in your life and say, this is the biggest problem in my life, may actually not be the biggest problem. It may be a representation of a bigger problem that lay underneath the surface. But you have not, or I have not, or we have not gone deep enough to really address the evil beneath the evil. Not Jesus. He addresses the evil at its very core. And then finally, we see what it meant for Jesus' audience, perhaps, uh, in summary of these things, was the return of Yahweh to Zion. For what reason? To reign. For For God to become king. So this is what Jews had hoped for. Now, again... In the first century context, they were looking for someone that would be like a militaristic superpower. In other words, somebody with with domain, somebody with the ability to shed blood against their enemies, the idea of vengeance, someone that would rise with a sword in their hand and be able to bring vindication and destruction upon their enemies. But Jesus has an entirely different way of addressing evil and overcoming it. Do you know this? This is Jesus' whole thing. And his invitation to you and I to pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done, is an invitation to consider all of this in your life. The last slide I want to finish with is what really would it mean for us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, 
is, first of all, release from all that is not in agreement with God. So again, we might look at just simply the big E's on the eye chart and be like, that's the problem in my life. Do you realize that may not be the real problem in your life? Do you realize that your insatiable inability to simply take a break may not be the problem? Do you realize that your addictions to other forms of vices like pornography or whatever, that actually may not be the problem. Your commitment or addictions to particular uh, substances and your abuse of these things actually may just simply be a symptom of the problem. And Jesus' hope is to go beneath all of that and to deal with it on a level that's thorough. So what we see is that it's a prayer. God, would you release me from anything, from everything, from every addiction, from every false desire, from every love. That's where it all begins. Is we have trained ourselves through actions, through pathways, through addictions to somehow begin to love certain things. Really the root of our hearts has to do with what we love. We love certain things more than we love God. What Jesus intends to do is to reorient what we love so that what we love is all that is in agreement with God. He changes our hearts. He transforms us. And then by that, we find ourselves becoming released from the grip of those things that hold us bound. Secondly, I think it would mean the defeat of evil in our lives, beyond our lives, in the lives of others. And then finally, the return of the Lord. So obviously, in the first central context, what Jesus was talking about, he's talking about the return of Yahweh in that particular time, but we also recognize that there's going to be a, what we would call the second coming, in which Jesus will one day come and he will set the world right. We long for that. The New Testament authors describe this day in which Jesus will one day come back and set this world to right. So here's the real big rub for us to consider. We who are invited, as followers of Jesus, to pray this prayer are also invited to live this prayer. So what does this mean? It means that when we pray, God, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth in, as it is in heaven, we are also asking God to empower us so that we could be part of that work of helping to release others that are bound by actions and activities and systems and scenarios that are out of agreement with God, that we could help others that are bound by evil to be set free from evil, that we can help others to see the beauty of Jesus and the fact that He is wanting to come. So our prayer is not just simply a prayer, but it's also an invitation to act, to live according to what Jesus invites us. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know the circumstances that you may be going through or the challenges or the evil that you find yourself dealing with or the areas in your life that you find yourself bound. But I would encourage you to think about this prayer as, beginning, as to be the beginning part, the beginning spot, the beginning arena in which you ask God in the quietness of your heart, God, let your kingdom, let your evil, destroying, bondage-breaking, good reign come into my fragile state. Set me free. Let your will be what's accomplished in, your, in my life. It's an invitation to let God be God in His fullness and that we would reorient our lives according to His kingship. 
So as we wrap it up, as we finish, we're going to have a time to just respond. We'll sing as we oftentimes do. And again, it'll be a time to sing together as a church community, but also as a time to partake of communion. We do this every week. It's a way of reminding ourselves that the bread and the cup, what Jesus has left us, is to be a reminder of the depth to which he had gone into our lives, into our world, that God was not put off by evil, that God steps into the world of brokenness and sin and destruction, and he does something about it. That Jesus takes on evil head on and destroys it and breaks its power over us. And you are invited into that power, that life, what... New Testament writer Paul would describe as the power of the resurrection to set you free, which means you need no longer to be bound by those things that bind you to pray this prayer. So, I'm going to pray over us right now. How about we all stand? I'll have the worship team come on forward. And let's just spend a moment considering and praying and asking God, What are those areas in our life right now? What are the areas right now for you that you're bound by? Those things that need to be broken. Those things that you need released from. What are the areas of influence, of evil over your life, of darkness, that God wants to shine His light to break the power of that darkness, to break the guilt and shame that always go along with that cycle of darkness, to set you free so that you can walk in the newness of life and light and most importantly God's love and what are the ways in which God may want to use you in his kingdom to communicate the beauty and the goodness of Jesus in this world so I want to pray and then I'll just pray over us and we'll sing we'll wrap it up as we sing respond if you need prayer at all for anything going on in your life I'll be up in the front we'll have some of the leaders up in the front as well I would love to pray with you and we'll partake of communion to remember what Jesus has done So God, we thank you that you've given us this prayer. God, that you actually care about this earth. You haven't abandoned it. You haven't abandoned us. And yet, God, this world, and maybe even in some cases our lives, are gripped by darkness. That's powerful, that's palpable. It's pervasive throughout our lives, throughout this world. And yet, Jesus, in your good reign, you've come to undo that darkness, to set us free, to help us walk in newness of life, to make all things new. So God, we together, we invite you to let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in San Luis Obispo as it is in heaven. In our hearts, in our lives, in our actions, as it is in heaven. So we respond even now to you, Jesus, as our King and as our Lord. So let's sing. If you need prayer for anything, like I said, we'll be in the front. And I partake of communion as a way of just remembering Jesus, and then we'll wrap it up.